Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Well, welcome everybody to episode six of Espresso Martini with myself, Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Matt, welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? Feeling better? Yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm I'd say about ninety-five percent better. <laughs> I still got five percent of sniffles left. Um I had my last antibiotic today. Had a mild case of bronchitis, which was brought along by a cold that was given to me by a friend of mine. Oh uh who I went to meet with a couple of weeks ago. Um and then thank and uh, they very kindly gave me their cold. So <laughs> yeah. So that was a bit of a nightmare. Um and uh, so yeah, I've been existing on two hours sleep for a few weeks. Um, but uh, no, now now I'm a lot better. I can sleep again, which is a big improvement. And um, and I think my voice has pretty much come back to how it usually is. So uh, yeah, <laughs> good, good, good to have you back. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, I suppose before we kick off, so Matt, you are now doing some interviews for the podcast, which I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful for. And you just had a brilliant one with um, Shane Harris that'll be coming out next week. What can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I uh, uh, yesterday spoke with um shane harris of the washington post pulitzer prize winning uh shane harris um and we talked about uh some of his recent reporting on the Nord Stream pipeline bombing that i mean this happened september 26 of 2002 so we're six months removed now and uh we're still not able to sort of conclusively say who was responsible when the bombing first happened um everyone you know in the u.s and europe sort of uh, instantly said it was the Russians. The Russians denied it. And over the course of those mm. few months, mm. no real evidence, no hard evidence bubbled up that would indicate the Russians. Um, mm. And it's been sort of a mystery since then. Uh, but recently, some new intelligence came to light, and there's some officials in the U.S. and Germany who suspect that a group of pro-Ukrainian partisans uh, may have attacked the pipeline. So I talked with Shane about um, his reporting on that issue. It's a pretty cool uh, interview. Excellent, excellent. Interesting you mentioned partisans because we're going to talk about Belarus a bit later. Mm -hmm. And there's some uh, Belarusian partisans who were involved in attacking um, a Russian AWACS planes. So it definitely seems to be um, a kind of growing thing, this, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to... Uh spoil the interview too much but the 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 prospects if it does pan out that a pro-ukrainian group again not the ukrainian security services not the ukrainian government mm -hmm. but a pro-ukrainian group uh was responsible it's it could be quite a tricky situation i mean president Zelensky is uh incredibly dependent on economic intelligence military support from the west and here you have a pro-Ukrainian group that blew up a pipeline in the exclusive economic zone of Denmark and, and Sweden. So that's, you know, not good for a country that has aspirations to join the EU and possibly NATO in the future. So it could, it could complicate things a bit if that pans out. Yeah. Well, I look forward to listening to that next week and uh, yeah, I hope everybody else does too. But so well done for doing that. Thanks. 
So today we have a yet another jam-packed episode. Uh, February, like January, was also a busy month in the world of espionage, geopolitics and intrigue, which is our area. Um, so we have a few topics that we wish to look at, uh, from President Joe Biden's historic trip to Ukraine through to the CIA director William Burns visiting various leaders in Libya. So we'll kick off with President Biden's trip to Ukraine. Um, so we're looking at the article... Biden's surreal and secretive journey into a war zone by Peter Baker and Michael D. Shear from the New York Times. And I'll just go through some key points and then I'll come to you, Matt. So um, to mark the first anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine, United States President Joe Biden bravely made a covert trip to visit President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev, Ukraine. And President Biden made the trip by train from Poland. In going to Kyiv, Biden was entering a war zone and putting his safety in the hands of Ukrainian armed forces and also those of the Russians. Moscow was given a heads up a few hours before he crossed the border. The calculation was that Vladimir Putin would not risk the precedent of a presidential assassination or an all-out war for that matter. Never in President Biden's lifetime has a president ventured into a war zone that was not under control of American forces and on a relatively slow-moving locomotive that that would take nine and a half hours to reach its destination. The trip is a symbolic one that affirmed President Biden's support for Ukraine. He said that he thought it was critical uh, that there be no doubt whatsoever about US support for Ukraine. And um, and Biden's speech was both for President Zelensky's benefit and also aimed at President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And also the speech was designed to sort of speak to Americans back home who have been doubting his decision to invest so deeply in the war in Ukraine. As he said, it's not just about freedom in Ukraine, it's about freedom of democracy at large. The trip had been in the work for quite a few months and aides said that only a trusted few officials in the White House, Pentagon and Secret Service and intelligence agencies were a part of it. The trip was combined with Biden's planned visit to Poland, but the secret stopover was put at the beginning of the trip rather than later, which is more sort of typical for these kind of these kind of trips um, and on the day of travel Biden finished his meal with his wife on a Sunday night and then he slipped out of the White House when many had assumed he'd gone to bed and he flew out of Andrews Air Force Base at 4.15 a.m. on a smaller C-32 Air Force jet and after a fueling stop in Germany his plane landed in Poland at 7.57 p.m. and then Biden joined the train at 9.15 p.m. and then arrived at Kiev in Kiev at 8 a.m. the next morning. So, um, Matt, what were your thoughts on this quite on this you know historic trip? I really geek out on the nuts and bolts of of how these trips happen. You know, like what mm. assets, what aircraft were involved, where did he, you know, physically fly into, what the security situation was like, how it was decided that these trips go down. Um, I think it was kind of apparent that at some point soon that biden would have made a trip into ukraine i mean boris johnson has been there at least once if not if not more than that i think he's been at least PM. two or three times i think right, yeah, even, right, right. Um, uh, post being prime minister and then we've had yeah she soon recently gone over there yeah liz trust didn't go i don't think <laughs> she wasn't <laughs> around long enough <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> she might have gotten there eventually, but you know that yeah. she could send the <laughs> send the head of lettuce instead. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, I mean it sort of surprised me that that he made it all the way to Kiev. You know, it would have 
seemed more realistic to me if he, you know, just went right over the border or went to somewhere like Lviv in the West. It's been a lot more, um, a lot more safe, but it's, 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 it's interesting to me, you know, if you look at how the planning for a trip like this would go, I mean, so the White House would early on go to the Secret Service and ask for their assessment on the security situation, you know, like, is this feasible? Can we pull this off? And of course, the Secret Service, their primary job under law is to ensure the president of the United States' survival and his safety. And if you look at it, as that kind of a zero-sum mission, the answer that they would give is no. He goes nowhere near Ukraine, you know, if if if, if that's your job. But to their credit, if, if the White House comes back and says, okay, but we're going to go, you know, for these policy reasons and because we decided that we want to do this, the Secret Service is going to go back and they're going to find a way to figure it out, you know? Um, so this, this article goes into great detail about uh, they – rather than the usual press pool of 13 reporters that usually travel with the president overseas, they picked uh, two, um, one from the Associated Press, and the other one escapes me at the moment, but it was just two. Uh, their phones were confiscated, and they were sort of sworn to secrecy uh, for the length of the trip. The White House sort of just flat out lied to the press corps. I mean, it was, uh, I think he, Biden and uh, and the First Lady went to Mass at Georgetown. They had dinner at uh, the Red Hen in D.C., great restaurant if you get a chance to go, uh, and then kind of, you know, disappeared. I think it's, it's curious that they took a C-32 instead of, you know, the big Air Force One. So if C-32 is a, is a converted um, military conversion of a Boeing 757, so it, it's, it's a bit smaller. Um, Biden has used that in the past, I think, a lot of times. So when he goes to his home in, in Wilmington, Delaware, or his beach house in, in Rehoboth, it's easier to get into smaller airfields that way. So he does use that. But you would see the C-32 is traditionally used for, like, the vice president, uh, the first lady, secretary of state, other senior cabinet members. But it's not—I mean, okay, so if you're thinking, if you have Air Force One, this huge 747, probably the most famous plane in the world, you know— Making, transiting that arc from the eastern seaboard of the U.S. into Western Europe. I mean, that's some of the most congested airspace in the world. And it only takes one commercial airline pilot to look out the window and go, hey, that's Air Force One. And, you know, say that over the radio to a control tower somewhere. And the whole, the whole trip is sort of blown. So using that C-32 gives them immediately a lot more deniability. I mean, yes, it's a high-ranking U.S. official, but you don't know which one, you know? And like, Yeah, you would assume it's the foreign secretary or something. Or right, the, uh, yeah. I mean, Anthony Blinken, the secretary yeah. of state, going into Western Europe or into Poland or something is not, uh, is not a big deal. You know, that's, that's happened before. Um, so he flew into Ramstein Air Base in Germany, refueled, and then made another trip into... Uh, an airbase in eastern Poland, I believe, and then took this 10-hour train trip across uh, across western Ukraine into Kyiv. You know, you have the president of the United States entering a country uh, where the airspace is still contested. You know, there are Russian warplanes and missiles flying around overhead all the time, and, you know, we have no control over it. You think of some of these 
uh, surprise trips that Obama and Bush made into Iraq and Afghanistan in in previous years, we we controlled the country. You know, I mean, yeah, there was an insurgency going on; it was dangerous, but we controlled the airspace. Um, you know, we had military control over the country. Uh, that was not the case here. Um, it's it's incredibly ballsy. I think it it speaks volumes that you were a year out from the beginning of this invasion. And Joe Biden was walking the streets of Central Kiev and not Vladimir Putin, you know, um, that says a lot. Uh, I'm sure there was also it's not reported in here, but I'm sure on on the back end, there was a large quick reaction force of uh, constituted by the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, that probably staged right over their border in, in Poland. Um, that could have easily swept in and, and assisted. I mean, that said, I said on Twitter at the time, on the day that this happened, that there is probably no one who wanted Biden to leave Ukraine unharmed more than the Russian high command. Yeah, because if they'd accidentally killed President Biden, that would have been World War Three kicking Yeah, off no, basically. they don't they don't want that. They're not they're not they're ruthless murderers, but they're not, you know, completely insane like that, you know. And uh, I, I mm, believe there was mm. some reporting that uh, that um, just as he was about to enter the country, there was a message sent across the hotline between Washington and Moscow that, hey, we're doing this, you know, back off. And I think that's just a that just goes to show you that deconfliction works, that hotline works, hotlines work when uh, both sides want them to. Mm. Mm, yeah indeed funny actually you mentioned a hotline i believe it's actually like a fax machine yeah it's a it's a it's a teletype machine um the u.s end of it is mm. at the national military command center in the pentagon um i'm not sure where the russian end of it is no. but and yeah it, uh, and obviously a fictional equivalent of it features in that ben affleck jack ryan film the sum of all fears some of all fears typing away yeah 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 which is i've rewatched that a couple of times since this war's kicked off i don't know why it feels like the appropriate tom clancy <laughs> film to be watching yeah, yeah that's fair <laughs> oh dear <laughs> yeah well like, like like you i mean i i found this truly fascinating i was thrilled to see president biden um make this historic trip um, and I'm sure the U.S. Secret Service would not thrill by the prospects. And I'd be interested to see in time what comes out from that. Because I know there's been report, a, bit, a bit of reported contested relationship between Biden and the Secret Service. And whether this trip may or may not reflect that, I don't know. Um, I'm just speculating out loud at this point. But um be interested to see because I, I imagine the Secret Service probably said no uh, yes yeah. because i can't believe they definitely said no they were told to do it anyway yeah yeah exactly so i'll be interested to see if any more details in time come out about that whether somebody publishes a memoir in a few years or whatever but uh, something will come out and i'm sure there's a new gerald butler film with fallen in the title being written uh, about a disa disastrous <laughs> version of this trip yeah so, <laughs> keith has fallen so probably in two years time <laughs> keith has fallen or something i don't know what it would be called yeah. but yeah Oh dear. Um, yeah, and uh, my other thoughts were so with this speech. Obviously, Biden's speech was partly aimed at America, and I think with, I think I'm right in saying, being a Brit looking at America, that uh, obviously the U.S. political um, debates about whether um, America should or should not be supporting Ukraine is somewhat contested. Um, certainly, with the presidential elections coming up next year, I don't think there's any guarantee beyond the next election that there will be U.S. support because if um, 
you know, if, if former President Trump gets re-elected, he's made it quite clear that he is against supporting Ukraine um, on a military scale um, and has even gone as far recently as to say that he believes Putin and the Russian government over US intelligence, who he's called lowlifes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then Trump also believes that he could end this war in a day. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's certainly, I, I think, this year in particular is a very crucial year for this war in Ukraine. I think Putin knows that too, and I have a feeling that Putin's strategy is just to drag this out as long as possible um, to see if if the presidential elections go in his favour um, next year, um, whether that be via Trump or some other candidate. I don't know. Um, it's, I don't know what your views on on that, what your view is, I suppose, from your side of the pond, so to speak. Right. <laughs> it is becoming... The, the the issue of support to Ukraine is becoming quickly much more of a politicized issue that, you know, how you feel on it depends on whether you identify as Democrat or Republican. I think that's unfortunate. Mm, mm, mm. Um, it's been sort of, it's been treated as kind of a false equivalency between, okay, we either support the Ukrainians or we crack down on border security. Or something like that, you know, or we uh, um, clean up the town in Ohio that had the Norfolk Southern train derailment, you know, which it's not, we're capable of doing both quite well, I think. Um, I think the deal that we get, that we are able every single day to whittle down the Russian armed forces, you know, to beat them into the ground for basically as a fraction of our defense budget, it's an incredibly good deal. Um, the best way, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these people on, on, and I know I, I'm quite center left. I know you are, are too. I make no secrets about that. A lot of these people in, in the U S on the right who oppose continued support for Ukraine are also some of the most staunchest China hawks that we have, you know? And I think, the best way right now for us to deter China from invading Taiwan at some point mm. in the near future is mm. to make sure that Russia gets their asses kicked in Ukraine yeah. to make that brutally apparent mm. to everyone. You know, like you see on, on Russian state media, they complain all the time like, oh, we're fighting all of NATO on our own. No, you're not. You're fighting our excess stockpiles and you're getting yeah. the floor mopped with with you. You know, it's a very good deal. I think. And it's I, I think that's what's so important about about this trip that Biden went to Kiev and to Poland and and made that case to you said it was it was directed towards the American people to show that this cause matches our national values, you know, the right to freedom, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the right for people to to have self-determination, you know, who they want to be. Mm. Um mm. Yeah, it's 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 right as we go into twenty twenty four to to make this case quite publicly to the American people, and I'm I'm glad that he did it. Yeah, I think it's good that he did it. I mean, it's interesting because like in UK politics, I think um, support for Ukraine is a very mainstream 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got a mainstream kind of universal appeal across both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, but it's the fringes of those parties who are anti the war. So yeah. you've got the far right kind of fringe of um, of the Conservative Party are quite pro-Russian. And then obviously you've got the far left side of Labour, which thankfully is um, not as dominant as it was. But at one time it was being ruled by Jeremy Corbyn Labour. And had Jeremy Corbyn become prime minister, he was he was calling for the end of, you know, for pulling out of NATO and all sorts of things things that echoed ironically Trump um so it's good that Corbyn has somewhat been sidelined now because had had we had Corbyn coming up as potential prime minister material for the next election here um you know because at the moment Labour polling very well in the UK um I think the, there's a feeling of um the UK public are a bit tired of conservatives but you know things could change who knows but if Labour are likely to win I'm I'm kind of personally glad it's under Keir Starmer and not Jeremy Corbyn because at least oh, with yeah. Keir Starmer there will be continued support for Ukraine but then saying that obviously depending on who wins the American election that will determine a lot of things um you know there's an expression about if America sneezes the world gets a cold or something like that yeah. um so I think if, if um, you know, uh, I don't know whether it would be Trump or whoever, but uh, uh, somebody else does win the next election and they are anti-support for Ukraine, it will cause a problem for Europe and I think for NATO. Uh, sure. Because if, if America does pull out of supporting Ukraine, then I think that's going to be almost sort of game over uh, in many respects. It'd be very hard for Britain and in Europe to sort of financially hold that um kind of be able to support the uh the efforts on their own without america's support so so yeah so i think ukraine i thought they need to win this war um this year um yeah. for this not to become an issue for them yeah. because i have a feeling next year it's going to become problematic i agree with that as well i i think the longer this drags on the longer this war drags mm. on the more of a risk you have that that fractures in that western alliance will appear whether it's um you know, I mean, so the House just recently was uh, went to Republican control. The Senate could at some point go mm-hmm. to Republican control mm-hmm. in the future, you know, and if you have a united Republican Congress, even if Biden wins re-election, that would make reauthorizing some of these spending bills um, um, quite tricky in the same regard, you know, if in Europe, take a turn, you know, if the far right comes to power in, in France or if uh, Olaf Scholz's coalition in, in Germany falls at some point in the future you know that 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 throws a wrench in in all of this so while i support what we're doing with ukraine and i think it's an excellent deal i I do think it's important that we state what our goals are what we would like to see and sort of start setting a timeline i mean i don't want to tell the ukrainians if the ukrainians are willing to fight i want to support them I don't want to tell them to start negotiations that they're not ready to begin if they feel that they're not in the right, in in the strongest possible position to do so. Um, I mean, I've felt in the past that that when negotiations begin, whatever territories the Russians currently hold at that moment, it's going to be extremely hard to get that back. Mm, mm, yeah, you know, like you're not you're you're negotiating with some of the worst people on earth. And the, the more territory that the Ukrainians control when those negotiations be in the stronger position, the stronger position that they're in. That said, I think we need to start looking at how this ends and and helping the Ukrainians achieve that because this can't drag on for another three plus years or whatever. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially, I mean, your case in point, what you're just saying, Crimea, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Russian controlled territory. 
is it possible Ukraine will ever get it back without force? I don't think they will get it back without force. I don't no. think uh, Putin's going to roll over and say, hey, yeah, you can have it back. Yeah. Um, it's of too much strategic importance to them. Uh, so, yeah, I think Ukraine needs to hold on to as much territory as possible because the more they lose, the more that ends up on the negotiating table. Yep. Um, and it is... The other thing as well, it's interesting, I was looking at, um, you know, we all draw parallels to World War Two uh, for good or bad, but... Um, I, I've been doing a lot of research over the years on um, Britain and America and World War Two in the early years before America could have officially entered the war. Yeah. Um, and it was very important that Britain got some serious victories early on to get American support because it would yeah. make it very hard for America to um, politically back uh, Britain. Um, and at that time, you had the American ambassador, was it Joseph Kennedy, was quite anti-Britain. Um, yep. And so he was sending out a lot of sort of telegrams sort of saying, oh, Britain's done for, it's finished. And thankfully, President Roosevelt completely ignored that um, and covertly supported Britain as much as he could. But, you know, ne Britain needed to bring on victories, as does Ukraine. And Ukraine, thankfully, is delivering victories. And now it's getting the support it needs. Because if you think about a year ago when this started, I mean, I, I will, I'm on this list. Um in a sense of, I, I honestly thought Ukraine would probably crumble within a few days because I was just thinking about Afghanistan the year before and how President Ashraf Ghani just fled. Um, and when uh, President Zelensky just said something on the lines of, I don't need a ride, I need bullets, you know, it was like, yeah. okay, this is a very different situation here. And hats off to him. He has been, um, I think, the most inspirational politician of my lifetime. Um, you know, and people like him as Winston Churchill and things like that. Um and and I just think the Ukrainians have done a fantastic job um, and completely have changed everything and, and also poked a massive hole in our views on, on Russia. We kind of seen Russia as this great power and the second world's most efficient army or whatever, you know, yeah. and in fact, uh, Russia is just a corrupt paper tiger. But obviously, it has nuclear weapons, so you know. So one shouldn't totally dismiss the threat from Russia. Um, but a lot of their forces have been decimated, and now they're kind of the, um, and they're just using kind of brute force and manpower to keep this war going on. They're using conscripts. They're and some of these conscripts now only have shovels. They don't even have weapons yeah. or guns anymore because they're running out of ammunition, or they yeah. wanna. And also, I've been reading that they're sending waves of people to get machine gun down. So then it wears out the Ukrainians, and then the Russians send in their kind of more elite and better trained troops. But it's a bloodbath, and it's terrible. It's like the 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 the, the prison conscripts that 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 Wagner's recruited. I've read recently that they've almost sort of exhausted those supplies. I mean, these are the men to your point that they just sort of send as cannon fodder across to sort of flush out where the Ukrainian positions are. I think in in Bakhmut, the Russians have lost twenty to thirty thousand men in yeah. trying to take what is essentially a random Ukrainian village. You know, that's insane. If that if that if if the U.S. military took twenty to thirty thousand casualties taking one small town, mm. any administration in the White House would collapse after that point. Yeah. I think that's the same yeah. true with, yeah. with 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 the UK. That government yeah. would fall oh, overnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, had um, I mean, we're at the 20th anniversary of Iraq, aren't we? I mm -hmm. mean, had that, um, and that obviously was not a successful campaign. No, but had that. Um, 
been on the equivalent of what's been going on with Ukraine, I think that would have ended probably a lot faster. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's unreal really, isn't it? But it, I think, um, at least from America's point of view, I think Iraq went a bit better than Ukraine's gone for Russia. But, um, you know, but I suppose that's a whole other topic really, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I think, I think uh, uh, if there's a benefit that these autocracies, and I think in the last, you know, five, 10 years, especially it's the, the world has sort of been divided. And I, we've, we've talked about this in the past that the world mm. has sort of been divided in a battle between classical small D democratic liberal democracies and, and autocracies, mm. whether that's Putin's mm. Russia, Xi Jinping's China, um, the far right movements in the U S and yeah. in Europe, they all sort of fall along those, yeah. those, those same lines. And if, if there's any benefit that those autocratic governments have over us, it's that they don't have to think in two and four year increments, you know, they don't have to worry mm, about mm. midterm elections and, and getting no. budgets passed through Congress or, or, or parliament, you know, they have the, the ability because they're so entrenched in power, they have the ability to wait and think and plan much longer than we do. And they can, they can wait us out much longer, which is why I, I think it's, it's important that we start looking at at what that end game is and helping the Ukrainians to get there. No, indeed. I mean, it, it feels like the Munich Security Conference where it, it did come across that um, different leaders had different expectations of what the yep. outcome of the war should be. Yep. So yeah, they definitely need to um, figure that out. I don't think... Um, I don't know. I mean, I think some people would like to see regime change in... in uh, in Russia, uh, I think I'm probably with them a little bit on that. But at the same time, I don't think that's a you can't do it by force. And I don't think the war in Ukraine's the way to do it. But no. um, yeah, but it would be nice to see Putin go in some way or another. <laughs> but um, I was just thinking this makes a very nice segue into our um, Belarus topic because um, the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, has been in power since 1994 and never relinquished it. And um, and in fact, he currently yeah. owes his presidency to Putin after he sent propagandists and financial support and tanks to help um, prop him up. And after the 2020 elections didn't quite go in his favour. But uh, so with Belarus, uh, we've had this really interesting article again from one of our favorites Michael Weiss um and mm -hmm. Holger Runemar and this is for Yahoo News and they've um and the article's titled revealed leak documents show how Russia plans to take over Belarus and so one of some of the key points from that article and I'll come back to you Matt um is that obviously this is a leaked internal strategy document from Vladimir Putin's executive office and it was obtained by Yahoo News and it shows Russia's plans to take full control of neighboring Belarus in the next decade under the pretext of a merger between the two countries. And in practice, this would eliminate whatever remains of Belarus's sovereignty and put Belarusians at the mercy of Kremlin priorities, whether that be in agriculture, industry, espionage or war. And it also would pose a security threat to Belarus's European and NATO neighbours, uh, with you know examples being Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. The author authorship of this document belongs to a presidential directorate for the cross-border of cooperation, which is a subdivision of President Putin's uh, presidential administration. This directorate for cross-border cooperation was established five years ago, um, and 
the actual task of this organization is to exert control over neighboring countries that Russia sees in its sphere of influence. Countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova. Um, and according to Western intelligence officials who've been interviewed for this article, the FSB, SVR, and GOU, as well as other military intelligence organizations, have also uh, been a part of putting this document together. One interesting thing in the well, there's many interesting things, but one thing that really stuck out um, stood out for me in this was um, a Western military officer was interviewed but not authorized to speak on the record, and he talks about something called passportization, which is one of the key processes Russia used to quietly take over sovereign territory. Um, and so what they do is they kind of hand out Russian passports to local people in order to extend their interest in that region. So in time, they can turn Russians can turn around and say, well, our Russian people need us. And that's kind of what they were doing in Ukraine. So this sort of Belarus document, it, it basically confirms everything that we've been saying about Russia and Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Belarus is kind of considered an ally of Russia at this time, but it just shows Russia wants to take over its allies you know uh, putin wants to rebuild the ussr effectively and this document is a um is sort of evidence of that ambition being put into practice so i don't know matt did you have any thoughts on this document yeah this was quite an interesting read i mean i think it's it's it sort of confirms the obvious you know i i mean mm. for all mm. intents and purposes lukashenko's uh belarus is already essentially a, a, a vassal state of Russia and, and has been at least until since since uh, Lukashenko put down um, those uh, pro-democracy protests after uh, the last uh, election um, that was widely considered to be essentially rigged. I think it it does really just go to show what he, what Putin has in mind for that for that post-Soviet space. I'm curious as to why they put 2030 as as sort of their target mm. date to achieve this. I mean, why wait seven years when it seems like this is something that could be done relatively much sooner? Well, I guess it's that long-term game, isn't it? I mean, I think the... I believe, if I remember correctly, like with um, Soviet communist doctrine, they believed it would take about 100 years to fully take over a country and completely change it because you need the previous generations and knew how it was to sort of die out. Right. So then um, the new generations who don't know any better, um, you know, will think that this is normal. I mean, you could see that in North Korea as a good example, and probably even you could argue China. Right. So, so maybe it harkens back to that. If you look at sort of the makeup in Belarus, especially in in those last elections, I mean, it was the older generations who have fonder memories of life under the Soviet Union that were more mm. sympathetic mm. to the Russians and to and and to Lukashenko, and it was it was the it was the younger generations who were out in in the street protesting. But I mean, it's it's mm. curious that they you know had this plan to sort of pass out Russian passports in Russian speaking areas of, of the country. I mean, that's a sort of that's what the Russians did in. Um, South Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia, these two breakaway provinces in in Georgia that the Russians have occupied for since 2008, essentially, right? Um, they did this initially when those you know little green men showed up in Crimea in in in, in 2014. Yeah. It's sort of the classic um, Russian plan there. Uh, when you sent this article to me as we were sort of discussing the outline of, of the show today. 
um, it it jogged my memory of a piece that came out last year, right after the uh, invasion. If you sort of want to go into that a bit, because I think it shows yeah. nicely the Russian worldview and sort of what they had in mind in this alternate universe. Mm. So this is an article. It's from late February of 2022. So this is February 28th. So two days after the invasion began in Ukraine. Um, it's by Yelena Zanova called Russian State News Accidentally Publishes Article Saying Russia Has Defeated Ukraine and Restored Its 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 Historical Borders. And this article describes a um, an article that was accidentally published on the website of RIA Novosti, which is a Russian state media outlet. Um, it, it was, you know, sort of like that 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 joke that people like time tweets to send out automatically and then something happens that makes that tweet entirely like inappropriate or irrelevant <laughs> or something and it goes yeah. out anyway yeah. that's basically what happened here but um it's it, it's kind of chilling i mean it was it was supposed to run on february 26th so that's that's two days after the invasion started so that gives you some sense of the russian mindset and just how overly mm. ridiculously confident they were and their own goals and ambitions in Ukraine. That within two days, you know, this this article uh, talks about how uh, the Russians have have captured Kiev. The article praises the return of Ukraine to its natural state as part of Russia. Here's a quote from it: uh, "The period of the split of the Russian people is coming to an end. Did someone in the old European capitals in Paris and Berlin seriously believe?" that Moscow would give up Kyiv, that the Russians would forever be a divided people. And it talks about, it praises this new era of the Russian world with Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine united as a whole. So I think it just shows the sheer arrogance of, of the Russians in, in, in how quickly they thought this adventure into Ukraine would have gone. You know, that they saw Ukrainians as, as essentially not even a real kind of nation state, you know, that, that the Russians would have just mm. marched in and the existence would have just collapsed and they would have been greeted as liberators. I mean, there's lots of reports that the, um, that, uh, some of their initial task force that was designated to capture Kiev, they packed dress uniforms with them and they, they intended on having like a parade through Kiev, a victory parade, you know, days afterwards. And so, I mean, there's an alternate universe uh, out there yeah. where, Man in this, the high castle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. It, it's that kind of stuff. And I think, you yeah. know, to what we were saying uh, earlier, that if if a different government was in place in Washington or in certain parts of Europe, I mean, if, if Putin had decided to invade a year or two earlier, you know, this is the scenario mm. that we could have gotten, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm still, I am still fascinated by why Putin didn't try this under Trump, because I would have thought from Putin's yeah. point of view, Trump would have been more sympathetic to him. Um, I honestly don't know why that didn't happen. <laughs> so I wish I did. I could speculate uh, whether this was just some, you know, because I know uh, some speculate that Putin kind of lost his um, what's the word I want now, but his marbles. Yeah, his marbles. Whether it's some weird COVID fever dream that turned into a horrible reality and then a nightmare. Maybe, um, and that might. I don't know. It's really strange, isn't it? It's, it's so strange he left it so long. There's been a lot of reporting of how 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 tight in in such tight isolation that he was in during COVID. I mean that he mm-hmm. saw basically mm-hmm. no one mm-hmm. and was reading all these 
sort of strange Russian ultranationalist philosophers, sort of orthodox, Russian orthodox preachers mm. that sort of just mm. it imbued his mind with this kind of sense that Ukraine wasn't real and that they would fold so easily. And I think this also shows you how how wrong the Russian intelligence services were in their their assessment of what kind of resistance the Ukrainians would, would set up, which goes to show that, you know, when you surround yourself with a bunch of yes men and 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 lackeys or people who are afraid to tell you the truth you start to believe your own propaganda and this is what you get so true well this is it yeah this is the danger of intelligence services who are just trying to paint a picture of what you want i mean i remember with oleg mm -hmm. gordievsky's biography you could have a drink there i'm sure it's a drinking game for this podcast i always mention oleg at least once every <laughs> few episodes but um it's like um i remember there's a bit in that biography where he was taught as a young kgb officer how to write a report in a particular way that would um be sort of uh, that would put a situation and spin a, a, a light on a thing in a certain way that would be favorable back at the Kremlin rather than being authentically true about something. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, like I've had those conversations with Dr. Kuzio about the corruption within the Russian system. So it does seem like Russian intelligence, which again, we kind of maybe painted in a similar light to the Russian army of being this sort of amazing um, force to be reckoned with. And obviously uh, the Russian intelligence service has gone around murdering people uh, for quite some time now under Putin. So they kind of, um, when people go around murdering people, it does sort of give them a certain... Um, I don't know, a certain vibe. <laughs> so you kind of, because yeah. you don't, you know, a lot of people like to believe that the CIA go around murdering people all the time. Like, you know, um, and I'm, I'm amazed how many people I speak to who really genuinely believe that the Jason Bourne Treadstone thing is based on reality. Um, <laughs> and we it's kill like, people sometimes, you know, but there's a lot of red tape involved. Of course. Well, this is it. And also, generally, it's in a theatre of war. Um, the yes. CIA don't generally, it, certainly since post the Church Committee, have not yes. gone round sort of knocking on strangers' doors in the middle of Europe and bumping them off. No. Or lacing their front door with Novichok. I don't think the Americans have really ever done that. No. Um, so, so, yeah, so it's, we've kind of given the Russian intelligence service has been kind of given a bit of street cred that maybe they don't deserve. Maybe they are just deeply corrupt and um, more incompetent than we have been led to believe. I mean, to be fair, quite a lot of the murders they've been involved with we know about, which isn't, um, you know, isn't particularly great tradecraft. You know? So so it's, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? So, yeah, so they probably are, have been painting a very weird picture for Putin for many years, um, and he has deluded himself. Yep. Yep. You know, yeah, yeah. So the other thing that comes up quite often with talk about the war is NATO expansionism. It's sort of a favoured topic of uh, sort of what we call tankies on the left and and then, you know, sort of people on the far right who are pro-Russia. Yep. And I think, to be fair, I think what all of this has shown is why you need NATO and why those former Eastern Bloc countries joined NATO, because they knew... They join NATO, it make it much more unlikely that Russia would try what they're doing in Ukraine. Um, and there's been much debate for many years about whether, you know, Ukraine should have been in NATO and whether Ukraine should have given up on its nuclear weapons. And I really think that the it's very clear that, that Ukraine should have been allowed to join NATO a long time ago. Um, and if they had, none of this would have happened, in my opinion. Um, you know, so it's 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 an interesting one. And the last sort of talking point that drives me out the wall with Russian propaganda is how, you know, how they like to paint the uh, they both the they like to paint the Ukrainians who you know um, who want to be a part of Europe and want to be a part of NATO as Nazis. 
And, um, you know, it's been, I remember back in the Euromaiden process, was it 2013, having debates with people online about the, the Ukrainians who wanted to join the EU. Britain was trying to leave the EU and the Ukrainians were dying wanting to join the EU. And I was always, I remember being quite moved by that whole thing and having endless debates with people on the left who were buying into this Russian propaganda that somehow these young people who wanted a better future were somehow Nazis. And, you know, I, I was outraged by it then. I'm still outraged by it now. And quite frankly, I think the what the Russians have shown with their dreadful brute force policies is they are the Nazis in this situation. Oh, completely. And frankly, yeah, yeah. And, and if anybody's any doubt of that, then they're fucking delusional. I'll put it that way. You know, yeah. Roger Waters, you're completely fucking delusional. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Honestly. That's, that's a good, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you think about like, okay, yeah, they say like, we're, we're, we're fighting Nazism in Ukraine. And one of the, one of the leaders mm. of, of the Wagner group has literal SS insignias tattooed on him. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is, it's yeah. also, it's, and it's white such supremacists a, love him too. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's such a crazy thing. Just think how this is sort of turned around, how, how Putinism mm. has so warped the Russian consciousness back around when you think how, since the 40s how that that memory of 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 the great patriotic war of that resistance and that victory at 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 stalingrad and that fight against the nazis was sort of the biggest mm. rallying unifying uh uh ideology of the soviet people for for so long and now it's sort of twisted around and yeah no they don't call themselves national socialists but but that that ideology that 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 temperament is 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 the same thing it's 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 an this is an overused term but it's 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 gaslighting you know the rest of the world yeah. it, it drives yeah. you crazy to yeah. go down that rabbit hole yeah well this is it i've always been of the firm belief that fascism and communism are pretty much the same thing but communism has better social health care um yeah. so it's, it's always been my view on it and so it's not exactly a massive step from going from communism to fascism basically mm -hmm. uh as far as i'm concerned with russia um you know and um one last thing that's sort of been on my mind with this dreadful war is i don't know if you saw it this week that poor ukrainian soldier who was having this last cigarette and said glory to ukraine and then he was executed by machine gun fire um, I don't know if you saw that. One. I didn't see that. No, it's this terrible video. It's been kind of going round, and they've, and the Ukrainians have finally named their soldier Alexander Matsuveski. Um, is the name of the soldier. It's a Ukrainian soldier who basically was gunned down in cold blood by Russians who had captured him, um, and then were you know obviously given him a last cigarette, and then asked him for his last words, and he said "Glory to Ukraine," and then they just machine gun him down. And this video has really stuck with me this week, and it's just like these are the Nazis. The Fricking Russians and the Nazis in yeah. this situation, yeah. Um, and I'm just appalled and shocked by how many people on the far left and the far right who just don't see it, and it's um, you know it's very frustrating. To, to your point about about you know the comparisons between the Russians today and and Nazis, what you're describing is mm. the exact same tactics that were used by the Einsatzgruppen. You know when they went in behind German. After the initial German advance, they would go in behind into these occupied territories, into Belarus, into Ukraine, into Russia, and would just systematically just just machine gun whole villages. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's the exact same tactics. Mm-hmm. I remember a child, I've had many a childhood um, holiday to Normandy in France. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, my dad was a bit of a World War II buff. And we went to many a village where you could go to the local church and still see the bullet holes from where they'd lined up the yeah. men of that village and machine gun them to death. Um, yeah. You know, it's always stuck with me uh, that <laughs> quite a morbid thing as a child to to uh, sort of come across in your holidays. But it's sort of definitely left a, a valuable lesson there. Um, and it's it's yeah, it's appalling. I mean, you know, we, we are seeing the evidence of the war crimes coming out from those Russian occupied um, villages and stuff, the mass raping, the torture, the murder, the mass graves. It's appalling. Um you know, and I'm just, it's just depressing that there are intelligent, I say intelligent people, but intelligent people who, who just seem to be confused by this situation. I find that truly, truly mind-blowing. But there we go. Yeah. So, um, Jalal Hakawi for War on the Rocks wrote a really interesting piece called Libya's Fragile Deadlock. So, back in January, uh, CIA Director William Burns made a whirlwind visit to Benghazi in Tripoli on January the 12th, and he was asking asking contending Libyan leaders to expel roughly a thousand Russian personnel and help organize nationwide elections. But despite being the most senior U.S. official to set foot in Libya in years, Burns is unlikely to get what he wishes. And what this piece outlines, and I, and I won't go into great detail on this, but the the situation in Libya at the moment is quite divided. He might have a president of Libya, but he doesn't have control of the entire country. And you've got the president of Libya is sort of backed by the Turkish. Then you've got Field Marshal... Khalifa Haftra, who is runs the Libyan National Army, and he has control of oil-rich East and South, and he is backed by Egypt, Saudi Arabia, France, and Greece. Um, and then you have an Egyptian-backed opponent of the of the president, uh, man, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Akil Salah. Um, and and so basically the prospect of an actual election in Libya doesn't look very likely at the moment because each of the factions in Libya kind of have backing from foreign powers and on top of that they seem to have found a way to kind of get funds to support themselves and bypass the the national government based in Tripoli and so the thing with Libya there's a few areas of concern obviously number one is a lot of natural resources that all those countries have mentioned you know America Saudi Arabia um France and so on who are interested and Turkey are interested in those natural resources but also there's a very complex counter-terrorism situation that needs to be looked at because you've got al-Qaeda and ISIS particularly ISIS very popular in Libya and yeah. um, and if left unchecked, that could become a massive problem. And, and in fact, North Africa and even West Africa are becoming the kind of hot points for jihadist terrorism today, almost more than the Middle East. And so I'm sure the CIA director Burns is quite conscious of that. Um, and is doing his best to try and sort of uh, build sort of assets and, and relationships of all the kind of key figureheads of that country to keep those counterterrorism conversations going, as well as also the conversations probably related to natural resources. So, um, yeah, so it's a very interesting article. And I think the, 
the main point of the article is sort of saying is that it's going to be very difficult to um, change the situation in, in Libya currently. Um, and a national election does not guarantee any kind of peaceful sort of outcome. It could actually, in fact, lead to another civil war in the country, which could make the situation worse. So it's a very difficult situation for the US, UN and other countries to really want to try and wade into. Um, I don't know, Matt, if there are any thoughts you had on, on this piece. To me, I think this this shows what kind of a, a, a disappointment Libya has been in the last 10 years or so. I mean, I I remember watching on TV when when Gaddafi was frankly lynched. Yeah, um, I remember. by that. his own people yeah. and 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 mm. and overthrown. I mean, quite a quite a gruesome show there, but I think there was a lot of hope for the country mm. right afterwards. Mm. I mean, we're, you know, over mm. over 10 years removed from that now, and I think unfortunately mm. for uh a lot of Americans history in Libya ended with the Benghazi attacks. You know, I mean, that was sort of the the punctuation mark on our involvement there, but uh, that's that's not true. I mean, there's this is um, gone on, continued since. And you see, it's, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's colonialism, but it, it, it's reminiscent of colonium. It's reminiscent of colonialism where you have these much greater powers all mm. sort of backing uh, their own different sides or to fighting each other. So you have the Egyptians supporting some people, the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, Turkey with their own forces in there. I mean, Bill Burns, the CIA director, asked the Libyans to expel a thousand Russian Wagner personnel. So they're there too. Um, yeah. It's it's a it's it's an absolute mess. I think Africa as a whole is quite a blind spot for the U.S. right now and has been for a lot. I mean, we see a lot of um, Russian influence, not just in Libya, but in, in Mali, in the Central African Republic, um, in in South Africa. I mean, South Africa has been quite flirty with the Russians and the Chinese recently. Um, the Chinese are, are doing a lot of development projects, even in Nigeria and, and all across mm -hmm. the continent with their Belt and Road uh, 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 initiative. That's arguably a bit of a debt trap that they're setting for these countries i mean that's a you could do a whole show on that on on its own um but you know i think it just goes to show that that while we've been so focused on east asia on the south china sea uh on ukraine and confronting the russians in in europe there's this whole other continent down there that um it's a lot going on there that uh, has not gotten much attention in, in recent years, and unfortunately, I don't, I don't see this situation in Libya getting resolved anytime soon. It's unfortunate because there was there was a lot of hope for for Libya right after uh, Gaddafi fell. There was. It was. I remember that time very much because um, obviously the the Gaddafi regime were murdering their own citizens and trying to yeah. really clamp down because I think they were worried. Was that because that was just that was during the Arab Spring, wasn't it? So I think Gaddafi was just suddenly was freaked part out of it. that. Yeah, yeah, he was very much freaked out by it and um, and went full on scorched earth and started killing all sorts of people. And there was like protesters being machine gunned down and stuff like that. So it was a very, I think it was a very justifiable case for wanting to get rid of him. And I even remember Prime Minister then, the then Prime Minister David Cameron flew out yeah. to um, 
to Libya just after Gaddafi had gone. And at that time, you know, Brit the British were cheered as heroes for helping, you know, uh, using their air, air force to help sort of get rid of Gaddafi. And how times have changed. I mean, God, one of the worst bombings in British history, the Manchester bombing of 2017, was committed by a Libyan national named Salman Abadi. And, um, you know, and he killed 22 people and injured a thousand people. Um, at a stadium and was targeting teenagers going to a concert, you know. Um, and there's been, in the UK, we just had a massive um, tribunal about that, looking into the MI5 uh, missed opportunities to stop that. Um, so, yeah, the terrorism threat from Libya is very real and should never be ignored. And, and the problem mm -hmm. is, like, terrorist groups love failed states. And if Libya does become a failed state um, at the moment it looks to me more like it might end up just becoming kind of uh lots of just factions um and maybe it yeah. creates a stability that way maybe libya as a country maybe needs to rethink it and just turn it into and it's just become sort of zones of, uh, under various leaders i don't know um but it's it certainly um if if another election does happen there's no guarantee of any stability um so so yeah, maybe it's best left in its sort of current situation because it sort of is functioning, but it's um, uh, but yeah, so it's but one's going to be really careful with that. But uh, as we were saying earlier, with North and West Africa is becoming the hotspot for jihadism at the moment, and um, you know, and obviously with that plus then Afghanistan, um, those are kind of yeah. key areas where the next big plot could come from, which is the big fear, isn't it? Um, that um, you know, because that, that's even though we've been very lucky in the last maybe three or four years on regards to jihadist inspired terrorism, that threat's never gone away. Um, certainly UK threat assessments still put it above uh, far right terrorism. Um, I don't know about the US. I don't know what the situation. I don't th I think um, far right terrorism is slowly taken over over jihadist terrorism. It is the number one threat at the moment. Yeah. But in the UK, it's the other way around. Um, so it's something to kind of keep an eye on, really. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, or should we just swing by Australia quickly? <laughs> we can make a quick stop in Australia. Yeah, cool. Well, we're going to just very briefly uh, go down under. Um, and there's a really great article in The Guardian called Hive of Spies. Um, and it's all about uh, uh, basically uh, the Australian intelligence chief has um, talked about a major spy network that's been removed from the country. Uh, Mike Burgess is the head of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, ASIO, uh, boasted a, a removal of what he called a hive of spies as he's declared his agency was taking a more aggressive counter-espionage posture. He did not name the foreign intelligence service that they ousted from the country. I would put my money on China. Um, I could yeah. be wrong there, but that's where I put my money. Uh, so he decided not to name the country. Um, but apparently the un unnamed foreign intelligence services had plotted to lure a critic of that country's regime to travel outside of Australia so they could be disposed of. Um, that could actually that could also hint at maybe even Saudi Arabia, but <laughs> because of the uh, you know they they have a tendency to bump off their critics in in their own embassies, but uh, but um, I still think it might be China there. And then there's also been examples of possible attempts to physically harm members of their diaspora community. So again, I think that's looking like China. We've had a scandal recently in the UK involving um, uh, nationals from Hong Kong who've come to the UK who are suddenly being harassed by the uh, Chinese Communist Party in the UK. Um, so yeah, we've sort of touched upon stuff like that in previous episodes. 
Um, and then Burgess said that whilst terrorism is an ongoing threat, Australia was facing an unprecedented challenge from espionage and foreign interference. And he said it feels like hand-to-hand combat. So, you know, that's a pretty bold statement there. And I know we, for many years, Western intelligence has been very counter-terrorism focused. Um, and some have argued at the cost of counterintelligence. So, you know, Australia is definitely taking a, a different stance on that now. So, Matt, I don't know if there's any thoughts you had on, on that one. I think you kind of said it nicely. I mean, he, uh, he, Burgess does not name the specific foreign intelligence services, but reading between the tea leaves, I mean, there's some activity that he describes it that reads sort of like a, like an illegals network. Mm you know mm-hmm. um operating under non-official cover that i'm not an expert in chinese intelligence operations but I, I i haven't heard much about them doing that kind of stuff i mean i hear that i think more of of the russians i don't know that this was the yeah. russians but yeah that that when, when i hear like these illegals networks my mind immediately goes to the russians and the other thing here that he says to your point the sort of harassment and monitoring of critics in diaspora communities and trying to sort of lure them out of australia to a third country where they could be i guess renditioned back to their uh home state that screams of china you know, I mean, that's that's reminiscent of also like we've talked about in previous episodes as quote unquote Chinese police stations in, in yes. New York and London and, and elsewhere. I mean, that's exactly what they're um, meant to do. Mm. No, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, and it's interesting timing as well because you've got the whole um, Arcus submarine program mm-hmm. that's very much part of US and NATO strategy to have more nuclear capable submarines in the Pacific theater against potential threats from China. Yeah, that that. AUKUS deal is absolutely meant to counter the Chinese. Yeah, indeed. So I suspect China wants to be all over that and any other defense posture relating to China. I think, if anything, I mean, Australia is actually a very key component of potential future NATO strategy against China. Sure. Um, so so I think it doesn't surprise me that, that they're, you know, potentially China's all over Australia at the moment. So, um, yeah, so no yeah. doubt that best to keep an eye on that. I'm sure there'll be more stories coming soon. Um, yeah, so we, you know, we've mentioned in previous episodes, there's been this sort of interesting thing about neo Nazis and blackouts, and sort of, and as we said earlier as well, that one of the number one threats in America is sort of domestic terrorism of a kind of neo Nazi slant. And Matt, you know, you, you put, uh, pointed me to an article about um, a neo Nazi movement behind a plot to blackout Baltimore. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is an article. It's it's a uh local uh news outfit in baltimore maryland and this will be linked in the show notes it's by brenna smith and it's called the neo-nazi movement behind the plot to black out baltimore and it it describes a um two neo-nazis charged with federal crimes plotting to attack baltimore's energy grid um it's part of a decades-old doctrine to push the country into armed racial conflict this is sort of uh um an accelerationist goal to thinking that if they you know cut off the power grid they can kickstart a race war in the united states um i i for one don't see how causing a blackout in baltimore or elsewhere i mean you've seen these issues bubble Mm -hmm. up in like north carolina and and Mm -hmm. idaho Mm -hmm. also recently Mm -hmm. i don't see how causing a blackout would trigger a race war but i'm not a neo-nazi white supremacist so maybe i don't get what they're seeing here um yeah, it's 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 I mean very much reminiscent of these sort of fantastical plots you would see in like the Turner Diaries. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. that uh, classic novel that inspired so many white supremacist plots, even going back to um, the Oklahoma City bombing with uh, Timothy mm-hmm. McVeigh. Um, it just shows that these that these groups are sort of still out there. Um, and uh, there's another sort of quick article that that caught my um, uh, caught my mind is in Bellingcat. Uh, borderless vigilantism, the nativist U.S. militias entering Mexico. And this is from uh, Avery Schmitz, who is a, a senior at George Washington University. That's pretty impressive that he's in um, Bellingcat, uh, but uh, goes into detail on this group of, um, I guess I'll say, a, a far-right group called Veterans on Patrol that um, are based in Pima County, Arizona, and sort of array themselves along the border and are meant to, on their own, apprehend people crossing the border and have even uh, uh, chased them back across the border into Mexico. And I know there's there, there's a sizable, uh, separating this from the neo-Nazis for a second here, trying to cause a race war. Uh, with this border thing, uh, uh, there's definitely a sizable portion of people in the United States and maybe even people, some list, some people listening to this who don't really see an issue with this. And I don't want to get into the whole, you know, border issue and immigration and stuff. I think it's unfortunate that it's been so politicized by people who would rather have this issue to campaign on rather than actually solve it. But I mean, regardless of how you feel about that, I see this as being quite dangerous to cross the border into Mexico, armed groups, armed groups crossing the border into Mexico. I I think it's quite dangerous. And I think it's important to sort of flag the security situation in Mexico in general. I mean, even uh, this week, um, a group of Americans traveled into Matamoros, Mexico, South Carolina, Um, yeah. One of them in the group was trying to get sort of like a dodgy black market plastic surgery. So they traveled into Matamoros, Mexico, right over the border from Brownsville, Texas. Um, and they were kidnapped by the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. This is the second most powerful cartel in Mexico. Um, Mexican authorities uh, recovered two of the four and two were killed by the cartel. But I, I just want to flag this because I-, I see... The Jalisco cartel, especially, they're they're essentially a paramilitary organization, much more so than what we would consider to be, you know, the classic sort of cartel model of like Pablo Escobar in Colombia and the 80s. I mean, they're arguably a terrorist organization. And I've sort of thought before that a lot of that extreme drug war related violence that you see in Mexico, if that in the future bleeds up north of the border into the United States, whether it's, I don't know, you have a skirmish that's triggered by this vigilante militia crossing into Mexico Mm. and they get into Mm. a scrap with the cartel. Or if, yeah, if there's some, if that violence of the drug war in Mexico is brought home into the United States, given the political situation here in this country with border security and 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 drugs and this kind of nativism and how politicized that is, I see that could quickly become a huge issue in this country and would frankly, I think, necessitate a military response from from the Biden administration if it got 
that bad. If yeah. if that started to happen here, and I think that's just yeah. an important thing to sort of flag potentially for the mm-hmm. future. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember the statistics, but I read somewhere that the amount of violence um, in Mexico is far worse than I think Iraq and Afghanistan put together. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's definitely an issue, and as you say, it's become very politicized. Um, and I think what you've got is a government that's not really fully in control of the situation in Mexico, and that's the problem. Um, I mean, yeah. I've traveled along the border um, near Arizona, um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember getting stopped multiple times by Border Patrol. Uh, we somehow took the wrong road, ended up on the road where we were always getting stopped and getting our papers checked by the U.S. Um, yeah. <laughs> ICE or whatever. Um, you know, it's quite tense along there. Um, and obviously, that's one of the things that disappointed me about the film Sicario. Um, it kind of copped out a little bit. It kind of did the classic... It's somehow the American government are responsible for all this, um, and it's somehow some secret American government plan or something. Um, and uh, you know, with the yeah. with this plot of Sicario, um, and I felt like it kind of missed the interesting side of the whole. I mean, it's a very complex thing, and that's what the TV series Narcos tried to go into. But the whole kind of um, financial side of the problems in Mexico and how the drug, um, you know, drug consumption fuels it. You know, the demand for drugs from American users, in a sense, is fueling the violence in Mexico as the Mexican cartels try to keep up with um, the supplying the demand. Um, and it's similarish, uh, I suppose, problem with some of the street gangs in London who are murdering each other all the time over sort of drug territories and stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's a very complex situation, which unfortunately then for the Mexico situation ties in with immigration and issues around the other, if we put it that way, and then becomes quickly quite racist in a lot of the debates yep. about it. Um, and then it obscures uh, a real problem in a sense. And we've, you know, we've got a similar issue in the UK with migrant boats um mm. and there's no real sensible debate about it it's just either racist saying that like the the royal lifeboats organization who who save these people should be arrested which is ridiculous um and in yeah. draconian policies from the conservative government but there aren't really any solutions to a pretty um, untenable and dangerous situation because um, you know we got a lot of people who do are coming to the UK illegally who are putting their lives at risk and putting the risk of lives of people other people who might have to save them um, and I don't know I have no idea what the solution to that problem is but there isn't a sensible debate about it anymore because it just gets hijacked by racists or or um, people who should know better who just run away from it because they don't want to get involved in it because they feel they'll be tarnished by the debate so so it's it's a very complicated one so yeah i yeah. don't know yeah sim- with the mexico thing i don't know what the answer is and i have no idea what the answer is with the migrant boat situation in the uk but um yeah it's not good and it can't be something needs to happen but, um but it, it, it can't be left to fester because it will just get worse and become more serious and as you're saying if it leads to needing a u.s military response that's that's not good <laughs> You know no. that'd be terrible. No, it's not. So, I mean, I think no. the issues with these, with the the problem with these issues is, is it gets so politicized, like we said, mm. and people just go mm. off into their own corners, and there's sort of no progress yeah. made on it. You know, yeah. like our yeah. our issue here with, with with immigration and the border. I mean, it should have been solved years ago, mm. and there were attempts mm. to do so, and they failed. And mm. I, I mean, frankly, I think some of the most vocal voices on the border on the issue of immigration would much rather have this issue to campaign on and sort of fire up and scare their base rather than actually solving it, you know? 
because then there would be nothing to talk about. Yeah, this is it. And people of extreme politics like, um, you know, they like something that they can use to rally people up. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is a similar thing with the war on terror. A lot of people didn't want to go anywhere near it because of the, um, you know, Islamist nature of the terrorism. Um, people right. were scared that by tackling the issues around fundamentalist Islam that leads to people becoming terrorists, they were just scared to go anywhere near that topic. And actually looking at movies around the war on terror a lot of movies would rather have a, a lot of spy movies would rather have the plot that the cia was somehow the bad guy and go nowhere near um islamic yeah. extremism um and it, it's it's uh, you know I, I don't know why i've kind of got into that tangent but it's been on my mind a little bit when watching a lot of contemporary spy fiction uh, at least with movies how they want to steer clear of the war on terror but somehow still want to be relevant um and <laughs> Yeah. And so somehow the CIA has to become the bad guy to facilitate that plot. So yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I, I think just I think that 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 issue of uh, Islamism and mm. Islamic fundamentalism at home, like within your society, has always been a much greater issue for you guys in the UK than it was over here. Mm. I mean, we have yeah, we have Muslim communities all over the country, but they've they're 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 integrated. They're not radicalized. That's never mm. been. Mm. Mm that's that's never really been the concern here to the extent mm. that it has been for for you guys no. in the last 20 years or so no. what is it i think the problem with the uk immigrant communities have always been treated as um uh, they've always been otherized and they've never been mm-hmm. there's never been a proper effort to find a way to make those people feel welcome and feel part of the community they're always you know um to quote some right-wing people i've met over the years they're not really british you know even though they're born here and got a british passport they're somehow not british um which is ridiculous whilst least with america and you know this might be changing but the perception i've always had of america is um in a sense no matter where you come from um you know if you're an american citizen you're an american you're a part of something um and yeah it, that's a very big difference i think that's probably being challenged a bit now but but certainly maybe 20 years ago that was a very big compelling force um uh that could have held american society together and I, and I see that's becoming fractured a little bit um you know whether that's uh because of the russians or not it's another matter but uh, <laughs> Right, you know, Russian propaganda yeah. working to, to yeah. crack American society, Western society open. Wouldn't be surprised. There's certainly a lot of evidence to say that there is that. But um, but yeah. So it's um, yeah. I don't know where we're going with that one, but it it, it there's a yeah. There there was has always been a fundamental difference between America and Britain in that regard. And I think Britain has missed a very valuable point. Um, and uh, I think Britain's paying for it, or has paid for it, and is paying for it a little bit. Um, and I think Britain could do better in in helping um, communities feel more welcome here. You know. Well, I mean, this could be quite a controversial mm. statement, but I think mm. it's it's quite easy to be accepted into polite society in the UK if you mm. have the money to buy your way in. Oh, yeah. I mean, Russians. take a walk around Kensington <laughs> yeah. and Chelsea, and yeah. you'll see that very quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, we like rich people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh, especially you know the various political parties like rich people too you know mm-hmm. <laughs> of different persuasions we won't name them <laughs> no <laughs> but it's yeah yeah it's a funny thing in britain money does yeah i think it's money and uh you know that's a sad thing actually britain still as a society if you go if you are born from money or go to the right places and your sequence of your life goes in a certain direction yeah it, it could totally change everything um 
it's still very much a it feels like a very much a rigged game in certain ways I mean, yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine from France who has lived here for half of his life but he doesn't want to bring his kids up over the UK because he still feels Britain's too rigged as a society and I think he's not far wrong um, there are certain elements of it yeah yeah, I mean, I, I, you guys have always sort of had that that issue with class and the lingering mm. vestiges of, of aristocracy that is just mm. kind of foreign to us. Mm. 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 Yeah, indeed, indeed. Where is it? And do you think do you think that's changing in the states or not? I mean, because the, the, obviously there's a big divide between wealthy and and poor growing um, in America I think... as much over here. There is. I mean, I think we're arguably in a in a second gilded age. I don't know mm. that that's just exclusive to the U.S. Mm. I think it's true mm. of the Western world in general. I think the world is very quickly being optimized for the one percent. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. I, I think there's there's you can only push that so far. I mean, I think it's this is in history where that's gotten so bad and just collapsed. I'm thinking of the French mm. Revolution, mm. frankly. Um, I'm thinking of of a lot of the um, reforms of of the early 20th century. Uh, you know, labor labor laws, uh, weekends, holidays, that kind of stuff. I mean, that wasn't so much violent, but you can only push people so far until they until they push back. You know, mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. those you know billionaires get to their bunkers in New Zealand or something. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Do you remember the we talked about uh, those pimped out nuclear bunkers and I think it was the first yeah. or second episode. <laughs> yeah, it was a while ago, yeah. Yeah. And I think you made a really good point that obviously those guys uh are very vulnerable because they're security people who are probably armed will probably take over the bunker and kick them yeah. out. <laughs> They'll pay for it and they get kicked out by the uh, yep. armed people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh dear. Well, Matt, you know, it's, it's been a really great chat. Thank you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add on anything we talked about? Or uh, is there anything interesting happening for you in the weeks ahead? Uh, no, not much. Um, just trying to stay busy. I'm uh, excited to sort of keep working on this podcast and take a more mm. active role. Mm. I don't know. Are we, am mm. I, are we calling me co-host or, or what is my, yeah, well, you're a co-host. Yeah, yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Co-host I, I, at I'm large. You know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I guess on, on yeah. Monday, is it yeah. after this episode release, we'll have my um, interview with uh, Shane Harris. Um, excited about that one. Check that out. And um, early uh, next month, I had a, a, another one with my, um, good friend a fellow indie spy writer um Stephen England that's sort of a a a long deep dive into the into the craft of writing spy thrillers and and his inspirations and, and mine and I think that'll be um something good to look out to and I, I have a couple ideas in the pipeline cool. that you know we, we we've discussed so uh yeah it'll, yeah it'll it'll be fun i enjoy it yeah yeah well i think it's a very exciting times ahead for the podcast so you know yes. again thank you for your part of that i think it's going to be it's going to be great thank you for having but, uh, me yeah no it's awesome to have you on so no, thank you very much matt thank you for your time today um and thank you everybody for listening if you are still out there you haven't nodded off or anything like that thank you for listening um and uh, don't forget to check out matt where where can people find out more about you and your work so I am on Twitter still. Uh, that's at uh, Fulton Matt, F-U-L-T-O-N-M-A-T-T, or on my website at mattfulton.net. And um, you can, you know, find my novel and stuff there. And yeah, best way to find me. 
Excellent. And uh, for listeners out here, you can follow us on Twitter by just going to at Secrets and Spies. We're also on Spoutable, which I misnamed Sproutable last episode. I don't know why I called it that, but it's called Spoutable. Um, so we're at Secrets and Spies on Spoutable. And we have a YouTube channel. If you uh, you know, if you uh, like this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It needs a bit of love at the moment. It's looking a bit sort of, uh, I don't know, it's looking a bit dire um, on YouTube. We'll currently, get there, but uh, but all the episodes are on there, uh, and what you get on there is a nice squiggly line with a photograph um, of the podcast. Um, and uh, also, you can go to our website, which is just secretsandspiespodcast.com, and you can get access to all our episodes on there, uh, and you can share episodes that way. So again, thank you very much, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.